I've been thinking a lot about this talk. Uh, I just returned from uh, vacation, actually late Friday night, and I uh, had an opportunity uh, to spend time with the three grandbabies. And uh, Kenley is four now, and uh, Landry is two, and then Brody uh, is going to be one years old in just a few few months from now. And so just having that week with them to just sort of um, reconnect and rebond, although we see them from time to time and FaceTime all of the time. A lot of you know that a couple of years ago, uh, Brent's company moved him to Bloomington, Illinois. And, uh, you know, totally against the will of God, but nevertheless, you know, it, it happened. And I'm kidding, of course, when I say that. But so it was just great having that time, you know, to see the girls and their mannerisms. In fact, one day it was so, uh, it was so funny. I'm trying to remember exactly how Landry said it. She's the two-year-old. And, uh, Audrey, our, our daughter and her fiance, were getting ready to go to a store or something. And though, uh, you know, so this is what they called out something like, hey, uh, Landry is with, with us. We have, no, this is how they said it. We have Landry. And so uh, Landry, who's at that stage, you know, sometimes two-year-olds, they just repeat everything, especially her big sissy. And so this time she heard her aunt say, we have Landry. And then she calls out, again, being somewhat repetitive, we have me, as they're headed out the door. We have me, and so they had her. And so it's just great being with them this whole week. And, and you know, I was already working a lot on this talk before I left to go on vacation uh, with all of the family. And, and I was thinking about anticipating my week with them. What would it be like in, in just... To have a week with Jesus. I mean, not to just know him from a distance, not to just know, hey, Jesus is the son of God, that he's perfect in every way. He's a sinless savior of the world. But what if you and I, just think about this for a moment. What if you and I had a solid week that we could just hang out with Jesus, that wherever Jesus went, we were with him at all times, uh, you know, morning, noon, evening, we were just constantly in the presence of Jesus. And I think that there's so much that we would learn about him that we did not previously know. In fact, I want to just add, because I think it's going to happen in the next few moments of the service. You see, if you sign up to become a follower of Jesus, this great leader of Christianity, you ought to know what that leader is all about. And I think that by the time we get to the end of this talk in a few moments, you're going to understand what kind of leader that Jesus actually was. And I hope and I pray that it makes you want to follow him all the more. But if you would hang out with Jesus for a whole week, there's some things that you would no notice right away about him. One of the things, and some of you have heard me touch on this before, you would know that when it came to church, that Jesus would be in church. The Bible said that every seven days he went up to the synagogue as was his custom. And so often I think about that, that here Jesus is. He's the very son of God, perfect in every way, innocent. But if Jesus saw the need to be in church Every week, I mean, what does that say to people like you and me, the need? And yet at times we just, you know, we're just, uh, well, we're, we're there. And then, you know, we miss quite some time. And then we're like, okay, well, I think I'll go to church again. Or, or I'll go to church this morning because I woke up a little bit earlier than I typically do. Or I don't have anything better to do. And, and you know, you just wouldn't find that in Jesus at all. And the person, you know, it's amazing that the person who you would say technically needed church the least was the one who spent time there the most. And that ought to challenge you and I to every, every time we have the opportunity to be in church that we would be there. But if we hung out with him, what would we see? What would we hear? What would we learn from him? 
and haven't spent a week with him, in what ways would we want to change? I think among the fact that we would know that it was his custom to be in church on a regular basis. We would find this out about Jesus, that if we spent that week with him, that often he would would withdraw to lonely places to just have moments of solitude where he would just say, you know, here's what's going to happen. There's so many good things that are going to flow into my life when I find solitude, when I extract myself from all of the noise. And our lives are noisier and busier than they've ever been before. The pace of life that most of us keep, and we don't have those quiet moments of solitude. And and Jesus just knew that it was so important to his mission and to his cause. And in those times, he would just find these moments to just pray by himself and to be with the Father. You see, Jesus was doing those things. There's something else that you would come to understand about Jesus, his great leader of Christianity. And it was that he went about doing good because Jesus was all about that. Good was what he was and good was what he did. He worked miracles in the lives of people. He'd just come in contact with people and he'd see a great need. And the Bible says on many occasions that he would be, he would be moved with compassion. He would see somebody in their suffering condition and he would want to do something about it. In fact, there's a verse in the Bible, it's not on the screen, but where it says concerning Jesus that when he walked into their lives and he saw them in their desperate situation, it said that the blind would receive their sight and the lame would walk and those who had leprosy were cured and the deaf would hear and the dead would be raised and the good news would be preached to the poor. You see, Jesus was on a mission of compassion and he was always busy and he was always doing good. And then he'd slow down and he'd find this solitude and he would pray and he would spend these intimate moments with God, his father. But you would say, well, you know, was that his mission? Was it just healing people? Was it just being compassionate toward people? Was it just praying? Was this what his mission was all about? And I've got to tell you, friend, above those things, as good as those things were, there was this divine mission that Jesus constantly set before him. It was the motivation of his life. It was the motivation of his ministry. And it was predominant among all the other things that he did. And today we're going to talk about that and you're going to see it. And there's going to be this part of Jesus's life that maybe you've never thought about. And you're going to say, yeah, Jesus did all of these things. But here was the one thing above all the rest that motivated him and inspired him to keep taking every step forward all the way to the cross. Erwin McManus has written a statement. He said, Jesus's reputation was always on the line. He hung out in the wrong places with the wrong people. And we're going to see why in the next several minutes in this talk. I want to begin with a verse that Paul, this great church leader, gives to us in 2 Timothy. It's chapter 1 and verse 9. And I want you to see this verse up on the screen. And this is what it said. Paul said concerning him, he said, For God saved us and called us to live. What kind of life? A holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, because in reality, friends, none of us deserve it. Why did he do it? But because that was his plan, look at this, it's very interesting language. That was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. What is it that this church leader, Paul, is trying to tell us here? First of all, he's letting us know that it is God who initiated our salvation. You see, from time to time, we may say or hear something like that. 
like this. Well, I, I just finally came to my senses. One day I just decided that I was going to become a follower of Jesus. I was going to give my life to Jesus. And that is true because you've got to make a conscious decision. God is not going to strong you, a strong arm you in to following Jesus. Love is not to be a robot and respond to God just simply because we're controlled by God. No, we're given a free will. And so we do have to make a conscious decision about whether or not we're going to follow Jesus or whether or not we're going to reject Jesus. But a lot of times what we don't understand is there is actually, though, something going on behind the scenes. There's something that is occurring, that God is prompting us, that God is guiding us, that he is directing the course of our life so that we can experience this free and amazing gift of salvation. So, yes, we have to decide as to whether or not we're going to receive him, but the reality is, and the Bible talks about this, no person can come to God unless the Spirit of God is already drawing them. So you've got to make that decision, but the reality is God is guiding you and leading you, and he wants to do that for every single person that has ever drawn breath into their lungs. God wants us to experience salvation because he knows something that we often forget, and that is we cannot save ourselves. See, a lot of people try to save themselves. A lot of people say, well, you know, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a really good person. And if I'm a really, really good person, at least better than a lot of other people that I know, then that's going to force God to provide a way for me to enter into heaven. Or here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work my way into heaven. I'm going to do so many good things. I'm going to do good deeds. I'm going to help this person here. I'm going to help this cause. I'm going to minister. And those things, listen, friends, I want to be clear about it. All those things we ought to do. But those are not going to be the things that are going to get us into heaven. You're not going to be able to get to the end of your life. And I'm not going to be able to get to the end of my life and say, well, you know what? Fortunately, I did a few more good things than I did bad things. And it just happened to tip the scale in the right direction. And, and, you know, just by breath, but nevertheless, I get into heaven that way. No, none of us, listen, none of us are going to get into heaven that way. The only way that we're going to get into heaven is because we receive the free gift of salvation that God provided for us through Christ. None of us can save ourselves. I was with my brother while we were at the beach this past week on vacation. We've done this same family vacation for many years. Audrey's now the baby of the family, and Audrey is 21. And we started this before she was even born. And so invited one day for my brother and his family. They lived from where we vacationed. They live about an hour, a little less than an hour away. So called my brother up, wanted him to bring his family, come over, we'll, you know, we'll hang out at the pool or we'll go down to the beach and then stay and have dinner with us. And uh, I, I was thinking about this, this, you know, it reminded me of it. My, my brother, we were busy in conversation and uh, he had come down to the pool and I was already down there and some of the grandkids were down there. And so there's a ledge that goes around the entire pool, all the way around, just a ledge that you step down onto. In the deepest part of the pool, there's a second layer to that ledge, and so you can step down and you know a little bit deeper, and you can actually sit there, be a little bit deeper in the water, deep end of the pool. And so my brother, we're in the water, and my brother decided that he was going to step down what he thought down the ladder into the pool. So I stepped on the first ledge, and he was there, and he stepped on the second ledge, but he thought it was a ladder, and his next step was a free fall to the bottom of the pool. And I've got to tell you, I, I enjoyed it quite a lot, to be honest with you. I, I really did. I enjoyed it. But, you know, it reminded, it reminded me, actually, of uh, my brother's seven years younger than I, and uh, my cousin is six years younger than I. 
And a long time ago, even before I was a teenager, uh, the three of us were, you know, we had a relative that lived in some apartments there in the suburbs of Atlanta, and the three of us were out of the pool. And my cousin, we were all just having fun, and my cousin, he was pushing my brother into the pool, shallow in, and he pushed me into the pool, and I was a good swimmer, and so I'd swim, and he'd, we'd all laugh, and we were cutting up, and he'd do it again and again. But gradually, without us even knowing it, we were getting closer to the deep end of the pool. And at one point, I, I just had looked around, and my cousin was standing, you know, on the surface area outside of the pool. And I looked, and it, you know, it's just horrifying to even think about right now. I looked into the deepest part of the pool. My little brother was there, and I could see him. It's almost like this happened yesterday, but it was so long ago. I could see him just pushing off the bottom of the pool, and he couldn't swim. I could swim, but he couldn't, and my cousin couldn't. But he had just playfully, not meaning to be mean at all, just pushed him into the pool. And I look, and I see my brother, and what a, instinctively, what do you do? I dove into the pool, got him to the surface, and, and I just look back, and I'm just so glad that I saw him in the middle of our horseplay just trying to get to the surface of the water, but he could not because he couldn't swim. Now, I've tried to tell him many times since then that I've saved his life, but he doesn't seem all that appreciative, really. But, you know, you and I cannot save ourselves. We can try, as I mentioned, to do all these good things, and hopefully we think that's going to be enough, but none of us can save ourselves. Only Jesus can save us. There's an important phrase in that verse that we just looked at that we can easily overlook, and it says this, that this plan, this divine plan that God has was in place long before the world actually began. And I started thinking about that, and isn't that just indicative of the love of God? Think about this. Perhaps you've never thought of this before. God started working on this plan to redeem people, and that is inclusive of you and me, that God actually started working on this plan to redeem us and to save us long before God even created people. And I just see the irony of that because God knew. God had a good plan in store for his people, and he wanted to create them. But God, uh, by his foreknowledge, knew that our original parents, Adam and Eve, would become defiant, disobedient, and rebellious against God. And God's like, all of this is before you, and you can enjoy everything. And this is our human condition. God says, I got everything open. It's all yours for your enjoyment. There's only one thing you can't touch. And the very thing that they could not touch was the very thing that they were drawn to. Isn't that so like us at times? God says, here, I've got so many good things that I want to bless your life with, and I'm going to open up all, but I want you to stay away from this because it's going to be destructive for your life. And it seems like we're drawn to the very things that God says, I don't want that to be a part of your life. Instead, I want to bless you, but Adam and Eve did. And so before God even created Adam and Eve, long before you and I ever came along, generations and generations and hundreds and thousands of years later, the Bible said that God was working on a plan to redeem people even before the world itself even began. You think about that. So why would God do that for bona fide sinners like you and me? And the same verse also answers that question. It is because of the love and the kindness of God. Several years ago, I was reading an interesting book. Uh, it was called The Briar Patch Gospel. And it is a statement that I brought along with me. The subtitle of the book is Fearlessly Following Jesus into the Thorny Places. And it's written by a guy uh, a pastor by the name of Shane Wheeler. And this is what he said in that book. He said, God sees everything. The 10% that you show the world and the 90% of the iceberg that is below the surface. And God still loves and accepts you 
completely. And that God does. I want you to take a look with me. I want you to take a look with me at another verse which is connected with this divine mission that we're talking about today. And in fact, I want you to read this particular verse with me. This is John 3, 17. Probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible is John 3, 16. And a lot of times we get to the period at the end of John 3, 16, and we don't really consider this next verse, but it's mildly important as well. And I want you to read it with me. John 3, 17. Let's all read it together. Here we go. Help me out. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Look at that again. Why did God send his son, Jesus? See, a lot of people think that God sent Jesus to condemn the world, to make people feel bad about themselves, to just punish people, to point out all the wrong in people's lives. That is not why God sent Jesus into the world, and that was not Jesus' intention. It wasn't then, it isn't now. He didn't come to condemn the world. Why did Jesus come into the world in the first place? He came in the world uh, to save people. Now, you ever feel like this because, you know, it's telling us what Jesus came not to do and what he came to do. Uh, Bible says God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world. So where does condemnation come from? That's something to think about. Do you ever feel like me in this regard that you don't need other people to condemn you because you've ma mastered the art of being able to condemn yourself? Are any of you like that? That you're pretty good at condemning yourself? I love sports. A lot of you know that I love sports. Uh, I, I would love to be really good at golf. I had a chance while we were away on vacation to play two days of golf. And uh, before I had grandkids, I played more than that. But grandkids now take the priority. But I went. And if you happen to see me get out of a golf cart and you saw the way that I was dressed and you saw the clubs that I had, you would look at, at me and you'd say, you know what, Jeff, He's a pretty good golfer, and you would believe that until I stepped up to the very first tee, and then there'd be the reality. I want to be a good golfer, but I'm not, and uh, you know, I grew up. Dad signed me up for baseball. You know, he is all about that. Mom didn't really care. Mom was reading books. Dad wanted me to play sports, and so t-ball, and some of you are thinking, really, t-ball was around when you were a little boy? Yes, it was. T-ball was around, and so my dad signed me up for t-ball when I was about five years old and played all, you know, every year since, got into high school. I was left-handed. Everybody wanted a left-handed pitcher, so I started pitching, and then I pitched in high school, and, and by the grace of God, I was pretty good at it, but I realized I was never going to be a college star. I was never going to make it to the pros. I was never going to be, you know, pitching no-hitter in the major leagues. That was not going to happen to me. I'm never going to have an opportunity, you know, to, to uh, quarterback a, a team to a Super Bowl. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good at those things, but I will tell you what I'm pretty proficient at. I can be a pro. This is an area where I have pro-like qualities. I'm a pro at condemning myself. Any of you like that? Any of you pretty good experts at that? And then you back off from that and you say, all right, when I'm feeling condemned, where is that coming from? You ever have these kind of thoughts? And I learned this a long time ago, and this is going to be very, very helpful to some of you if you'll really listen to what I'm about to say. I started assessing, you know, when I started sort of feeling bad internally and feeling condemned, and I started asking these questions. Well, where is this condemnation coming from? Is it coming from God? Is it coming from the devil? Is it coming from me? I mean, just why do I feel so condemned? Where is it actually originating from? 
And then I'd just read the Bible more and more, and I'd study the Bible more and more, and I'd teach the Bible more and more. And the more that I came to understand the Bible, the more that this became clear to me, something that's about to become clear to you. And that is, I came to realize through my study of the Bible that, that God was not about condemnation, that God was about convicting. And see, conviction and condemnation are two totally different things, and I'll tell you the difference. Here's the difference. When God convicts me of something that I'm doing wrong, he sends the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit convicts me. And when I feel convicted, this is what I want to do. When I feel conviction from God sent to me by the Holy Spirit, it makes me want to move in the direction of God. He's convicting me of something that I'm doing wrong, but it makes me want to run to God. It makes me want to embrace God. And I'll give you a picture in your mind of something that will help you to understand this truth. Have you ever seen a small child get a spanking? Have you ever seen a small child? Now, I, I, did, I, I don't do that for my grandkids, by the way. You know, the reality is, as it, as it came to my kids, it was discipline. I was the disciplinarian. When it comes to my grandkids, it's all about love. I don't discipline. Somebody else has got to discipline. But when you see a small child, have you ever seen a small child get a spanking and they just start crying? And what do they do? I've seen this so many times. They look up at the very person that has just given them a spanking and they want to be held and they want to be hugged and they want to be loved on. And that's like, and that's like conviction. That's like God says, you know what, Jeff? I'm convicting you of something, and it just makes me want to say, well, thank you, God. And it's painful for me to, you know, have to come to grips with this, but thank you, and it makes me want to run to God. Now, how many of you, you have that in your mind, wave at me like this, all right? That's conviction. It comes from God, and it's sent by the Holy Spirit. But this is something that is totally different, and that is what Jesus did not come into the world to bring. He didn't come to bring condemnation. You see, condemnation is from the evil one. See, here's how you can understand the difference between conviction that is sent by God and condemnation that is sent by the evil one, by the devil. When I'm being condemned by the devil, you know what it makes me want to do? It makes me want to turn from God. It makes me want to run from God because I'm embarrassed and I'm humiliated and I'm ashamed. And the enemy just tries, keeps, keeps trying to condemn me and condemn me. And rather than wanting to move from God, I, I want to just walk away from God because I start thinking, why would God want to have anything to do with somebody like me? And so uh, conviction comes from God. You get that? Wave at me again if you get that. Condemnation comes from the evil one, but then there's times where we condemn ourselves. And again, some of you may be like me, that you get really hard on yourself in that regard, and you're a pro at condemning yourself. And Jesus makes it clear, even in his own words, that his plan is not to load us down with condemnation, but to actually lift us up with salvation. But for most of us, we lean toward the condemning part and not the saving part. I want you to take a look. This is out of a book I read a number of years ago. Uh, the name of the book is How People Grow. It's written by Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend. And this is the statement that is in the book that I wanted you to see. God's acceptance of us in no way negates or minimizes our badness. In fact, he is able to receive us now, not because we're innocent, but because our debt of guilt has been fully paid once and for all. So when we're afraid that he will not accept us because we have done something wrong, it is we who at some level are negating and minimizing what he has done for us. And then they add, 
there is truly now, and this is right out of the Bible, there's truly now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And there is, that's why the Bible says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, there are many of you in this service today, because you have not previously understood this, that, uh, that you... You, in condemning yourself, you're finding it difficult to distinguish between God's acceptance and God's approval. And again, just as I shared with you a moment ago, how you can recognize the difference between the Holy Spirit convicting us and the evil one condemning us, I want you to be able to see the difference between God's acceptance and God's approval. And I'll share it with you like this. You see, there are some parts of your life and some parts of my life that God does not approve of. And in reality, those are the things that we need to stop doing because it's God's best for our life. And ultimately, if we keep on doing those things, it's going to lead to misery. It's going to lead to anxiety. And the reality is, you know, those are the things in our life that God does not approve of. However, Having said that, even though God does not approve of that thing or those things which we may be doing, he still, and I want you to embrace this for your own life, he embraces you. He embraces you. He accepts you. So God says, you know what? I see an area or so in your life. I don't approve of that. I don't like that. And it's not because I'm trying to cramp your style. I just know ultimately what that's going to lead to, and you're not going to like the end result of it. And so I don't approve of that in your life. But then God says, even though I don't approve, I accept you. Why do I accept you? Because you're my son and you're my daughter. And again, I'll just help illustrate this. I've got three kids, two boys and a daughter. And, and, and my son, you know, the baby, who is no longer a baby, she's 21, but uh, among the three, she is the most innocent among them, the most innocent. And, and the boys, you know, uh, they, you know, uh, they could be, they could be uh, rowdy at times. And again, they were good, good boys. They're still good boys. They're grown men with families of their own now. But as compared to their sister, they were cut out of a different bolt of cloth. But I never looked at my boys when they get in trouble at school or whatever the case would be. I never looked at them and said, you know what? Because I don't approve of that, I don't accept you. Why did I accept them? Because it's the way I accept my kids. I may not approve of something, but I accept them because they're my kids. And I don't want them doing something. Why? Because it could be counterproductive. It could be destructive in their life. But I, I, I accept them because they're my child. Does that make sense to you? Would you wave at me like that? I, I don't give up on them because when they were like teenagers that I may see something that I didn't like. I didn't say like, you know, Brent, Drew, you know, the reality is I, I see that area of your life. And, you know, because of that, I don't like that. You're no longer my son. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. And God doesn't do that with us. And so there is a profound difference between the two. God created you, and God has devised a good plan for your life. You see, God does not want you or me to be weighed down with guilt or with shame or with condemnation. Instead, he wants us to experience peace and joy and freedom, and he wants us to experience his forgiveness. And the reality is, even beyond that, God wants us to learn how to forgive ourselves. I can't tell you the number of times as a pastor when I have, in reality, sat down with a person in my office or 
across a cup of coffee or a meal somewhere, and I've, I've, I've had this conversation so many times, and I said, I think I see what is going on here. The problem is not God forgiving you because you've repented and you've asked God to forgive you, and the problem is not God forgiving you. What I see going on here is the reality is you are not forgiving yourself. God forgave you. The Bible says if we confess our sin, listen to this now, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Can I tell you, most of the time when I run into people, it has nothing to do if they're going through some problems in this whole forgiveness matter. It is not because God is reluctant to forgive them. It's they have not found the value of being able to forgive themselves. Um, Dr. Les Parrott has uh, written a book uh, some time ago. And let me just share with you, because it's unique, more unique than anything that I've ever read about this whole idea of self-forgiving. And he says this, how does anyone forgive oneself? And he gives this, and this may be helpful for you. He says, it begins when we dare to do something that may seem silly at first, but will soon seem profound. We need to make a pronouncement of our self-forgiveness out loud not to anyone else, just to ourselves. We need to look squarely into the mirror and give ourselves absolution. We need to look in the mirror and say, God forgives you and so do I. We need to meet our own eyes in the mirror and say it again. Of course, this statement won't instantly cleanse you from your condemnation, but it provides the beginning for relief. It is a proven method for starting to cleanse the toxins of regret and shame and and guilt from your system. So look in the mirror and say it again and again. Say it dozens of times until you feel your heavy burden beginning to ease. And say a prayer of thanksgiving as God's grace begins to do its amazing work in you. By the way, he writes, if you're having a tough time believing God forgives you, which is the foundation, he writes, and it's true of self-forgiving, remember that forgiveness is God's idea. God invented forgiveness as a remedy for a past that not, not even he could change and not even he could forget. So learning the value of forgiving yourself. Now, still tethered to what we're talking about, and we're about to wrap up, but I want you to see and hear this for just a moment. Still tethered to Jesus' primary mission, his divine mission is another key verse, and you did great last time. I want you to read this next verse with me. Everybody look at it. This is Luke 19.10. What does it say? Read it with me. The Son of Man came to look for and to save people who are lost came to look for and to save people that are lost. Now, let me take that just for a moment out of a spiritual context into a practical, everyday kind of context. And I'll give you an example right here as well. On Friday, again, we started this vacation last Saturday, went through Friday. And so on Friday, Kenley, who's four, Landry, who's two, I, uh, they had been at the beach and the pool and pool and beach, and they were just getting a little tired of that. And so I knew that Marine Land, some of you have heard of Marine Land. I knew it wasn't too far away. So I say to Nicole, I'm like, hey, I would like to take, I needed to get permission, of course, from their mom. I would like to take Kenley and Landry to Marine Land. Is that all right? Like, that means like Paul Paul by, by himself. And I, I knew that could be a little bit scary. And so, you know, can, you know, Paul Paul keep up with two very active little girls running around everywhere. And so just to help eliminate any worry, this is what 
I said to her. I looked at her and said, can I take the girls to Marineland? And let me give you some assurance here. I like them a lot more than I do my kids, and they all turned out okay. You know, I was able to keep up with them pretty good. So if you'll trust me. And she's like, of course. And so I loaded them up, put them in their car seats. He was so excited, you know, about seeing the dolphins, as Ken, as Landry would say, and I want to see the turtles. And so we had to see the turtles and the sharks. And so I, I got them. And so knowing where I was going with this talk, I was thinking, and again, I wouldn't even allow my mind to go this way very long. I thought, you know, what if these little girls that I'm walking through this park holding their hands, what if for a moment they got away from me? Now, let's stop there for just a moment. How many of you remember as a small child ever giving, getting separated from your parents, even though it was just maybe a brief, how many wave at me like this? As a small child, you remember getting separated, and that, isn't that a horrible feeling? Now, how many of you, all right, saw those hands. How many of you, you can remember a time when you had a small child just momentarily get separated from you in a crowd? How many of you? Now, isn't that an even more horrible feeling? And so I wouldn't entertain that thought very long, but I thought for just a moment, again, knowing where I was going with this talk, that Jesus came into the world seeking to save people that are lost, I thought for just a moment, what if one of these little girls, what if one of my little granddaughters got away from me and I turned around and I couldn't see her anywhere and, you know, I'm looking and, and just that was a horrifying thought and, and I had this next thought. I would, I would unashamedly raise my voice, scream, yell, run, do whatever, call in their names. I, I would do whatever it took to go and find one of my lost little granddaughters. Why? Because I love them. I love them. And, and furthermore, it, it, it doesn't work out well when you bring 50% home. And we'll be like, well, I brought one of them home, you know, uh, it's just me. Really? How can you expect me, Papa, to keep up? Uh, that, that wouldn't go very well. Now, why do I want to mention that? God doesn't, God doesn't want to mess out on taking any of you home, any of us home. You see, when God, takes about take, when God thinks about taking his kids home one day, he's not saying, well, you know what? I want to just take, hey, I'd be happy with 50%. If I could just bring 50% home, that would be great. Hey, if I could bring 80% home, wouldn't that be wonderful? Eight out of every 10? And God said, I sent Jesus into the world. And Jesus has been on this divine mission ever since to seek and to save that are those that are lost. And you think as a, as a pawpaw, I'd go crazy running through the crowds looking for one of my granddaughters. Let me ask you a question. How does a perfect God that his love and care and compassion is perfect in every way feel about you who may be lost? He wants to take you home. He wants one day when your life is over, or when he comes back to be able to take you home. But friends, it's only going to happen one way. It's only going to happen because you've received Jesus as the Savior and the leader of your life. And so I want to close now, but I want you to give me your undivided attention for the next couple of moments, and we're going to wrap up. If you and I had an opportunity to hang out with Jesus for an entire week, that would be an amazing thing. And we would know, hey, you know what? Jesus is a great teacher, but he's more than a great teacher. 
He's more than a respected rabbi. Is he that? Yes. Is he a faithful son and brother? Yes. Is he a loving and dependable friend? Yes. Jesus was all these things. Was he the perfect, sinless son of God? Yes, he was those things. Was it his custom to be in church? Was he one who valued solitude and found quiet places to pray by himself? Did Jesus go about doing good and working miracles and dispensing compassion? He did all of those things. However, friends, you've got to hear this. His primary mission and calling was to save the world and that is why he would choose to not reject the cross. And there are some of you that you need to encounter Jesus today. The reality is you cannot save yourself. You cannot save yourself. I want you to stand with me, but I don't want anybody to leave yet unless it's like an emergency. I want everybody to stand with me for just a moment because I'm about to pray, but I don't want us to miss this opportunity. You cannot save yourself. You just can't. You know, I mentioned a moment ago that uh, going to church every week was Jesus' custom, that the person who needed it the least went the most. And, and you know, going to church is a very important thing. And I have strong, strong feelings about that, by the way. In fact, I'll tell you how strong I feel about it. I feel like every Sunday when you have the opportunity to gather that you ought to be here. Now, you get a free pass if you're out of town or you get a free pass if you're in the hospital. But aside from that, I just don't, well, I don't feel like going today or, you know, I'm so busy, you know, I just need to sleep in. The whole world is busy. I don't know when you're going to realize that, but the whole world is busy. You need to be in church. But I have to tell you, if you were in church and never missed another Sunday the rest of your life, but you never received Jesus, that would not be enough. I challenge you to tithe all the time. You know why? Because I want God to bless your life. And the Bible says this. It's not my opinion. It's what the Bible says, that if you're faithful to tithe, that God's going to bless your life. But you can tithe and you can give. You can give exponentially, percentage-wise, huge amount of money, way more than 10 or 20 or 30. You could give half of your income away for all kinds of noble causes. And you could do that. But if you didn't receive Jesus, that's not going to get you into heaven. You can be a part of a small group and you ought to be. You can serve in a ministry and you ought to do it. But you can do all those things. But if you don't receive Jesus. That's not enough. There's this frightening verse in the Bible that says, when you read it, that at the end of time, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to stand before God and say, God, I'm ready to come into heaven. And God's going to say, but I don't know you. But Lord, we did this in your name. We did this. We did this. We did this. We did all these things. And they're going to go right down the list. And God's going to say, I'm sorry. And it's going to break the heart of God. I didn't know you. And what does God say? I don't know you. Because that person just said, I'm going to get there by doing my own thing and not by receiving his son, Jesus. And I don't want you to miss heaven. I want to be very clear what this moment is about. If you're not a Christian, I want you to become a Christian. And I don't want you to count on your own effort to get there because that will fall short. I want you to receive Jesus. And God loves you. And that's why God sent Jesus. And that's why Jesus was on this divine mission to seek and to save those that are lost. Another verse we didn't even have a chance to get to. Jesus said this one time. He said, I didn't come into the world for those that are well. I came into the world for those that are sick. What is he saying? I'm going after people that are just need me the most. And the people that need him the most are those who are not yet Christians. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed and nobody looking around, this will only take a moment. If you're not yet a Christian and you want to become a Christian today, you want to receive Jesus into your life. Jesus who is on a divine mission to save you. Jesus who came into this world because he loves you. Jesus who wants to have a relationship with you. If you want to receive him today into your life and you've not done that before, I want you to lift up your hand real high because I don't want to miss it. I want you to lift it up for just a second. Give me a chance to see it and then you can put it 
right back down. Just lift it up for just a second. Thank you so much. All right, see it? You can put it down. And right there where you're at, would you just pray that this prayer right in your heart? Jesus, I need you. Thank you for coming in to this world to save sinners. And that's what I am. I'm a sinner. And I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I'm sorry for my sin. Your word says that if I call upon your name, that I will be saved. That if I invite you into my life, that you will come in. Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. And reserve for me a place in heaven. I know that you love me. I know that you care about me. I know that you're ready to receive me. And I'm ready to receive you. So come into my life today. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Can we give Jesus a big hand clap of praise before we're done? I love you, everybody. Have an awesome week. I'll see you right back here next Sunday.